Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Amazing, wow. Everyone's had obviously an amazing week. (laughs) Great. That didn't take long for the kind of hubbub of fellowship to start. Amazing. This week we begin uh, our autumn teaching series and we're going to be looking at... uh, some letters found in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at the period of ch- in church history, I guess, where there was just this extraordinary growth. And we're going to be looking through the book of Acts and looking at many of the churches that started right at the dawn of this movement, places like Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and many more, and learning lessons from them and thinking about those lessons and what would happen if we apply them to our situation today and in that context then would we might possibly see similar fruit and this morning we're going to begin slightly out of order because I wanted to start in this place we're going to be looking at the church at Galatia which you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14 and uh, we're going to be looking roughly at the whole book of Galatians which is a little bit of a challenge in 30 minutes but we'll have a go if you'd really like to get into this after I've spoken this morning then Ron Lamb begins a small group over the next eight weeks looking in detail at the book of Galatians and I'd thoroughly recommend attending that small group if you he's just a great opener of the word and you get a chance to think and talk and share about that so I'd endorse that to you but we're going to look at this book this morning and I just want to focus right at the beginning on chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 11 to 20. Uh, The words are going to be on the screen, they may be a bit small for some. If you have a Bible then by all means um, follow it there. But Galatians chapter chapter 2, 11 to 20, here we go. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat from the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. And not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put on our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. 
if I'd be rebuild what I destroyed, would I really be a lawbreaker? For though the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. In many ways, the church in Galatia is a really quite complex one and hard to draw one coherent theme from. And so this isn't so easy, but you see, there's more than one church in Galatia. Galatia is a large and diverse region. Uh, basically, it's modern south-central Turkey. I've tried to highlight it on the, the screen here. You might be able to see there's a faint yellow circle. It, and Paul is, testifies, or is recorded in Acts, particularly about four churches that he started, he visited uh, Antioch, uh, Iconum, Lystra, and Derby. And we're going to look at those briefly. They were all started in the mid-40s. That's not 1940s, but 40s. And you can read about them, as I said before, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And at this point in church history, that the growth really begins to speed up. Churches are being established with a huge amount of frequency. And thousands of lives are being changed. And this once fledgling movement, if you like, is being, well, it's being talked about all over the Roman Empire. And there's a reason for this. And... You see, the church at this point in its history was breaking through, radically breaking through social, racial, and cultural barriers and divides. The church was no longer just a Jewish thing. It was drawing people from all over the known world. A variety of cultures and backgrounds, rich, poor, slave-free, women and men, Jew and Gentile, different nationalities, different cultures... At this point, the church had become broad-shouldered and had opened its arms. Barriers between people were coming down. In some places, crashing down. And foundation, foundational to this church in Galatia was this idea that everyone was welcome. And this was just causing an explosion of growth. And I guess the $64 billion question is, well, how did that, what were they doing particularly at that time that caused this growth to happen? How did, how were they so effective at crossing over these boundaries and barriers that actually we find in our society today, and it was no less so at that time, so difficult to cross? And that's what I want to focus on a little bit this morning. And in a nutshell, it's, it's quite a simple thing, really. In a nutshell, the answer is love. That's probably the main thing that we can actually learn from the Galatian church. I'll try and elaborate. The big mistake, or at least one of the mistakes we can make, is when we read through Paul's mission to Galatia, and it was largely Paul with a team with him, is that the secret of his success was, was that Entirely down to preaching. 
It's true, treating was part of the values of the things that he did, but there was a lot more that went with it as well. It's easy to come to that conclusion if we read the passages. It seems to go along to different places and do a whole lot of talking, and churches are established. It was one ingredient of the success, but I think, well, actually, I don't think it was the main one. Now, let me be clear. Speaking, talking, preaching is an essential part of a growing, healthy church. And seeing people come to faith in Jesus, it's absolutely essential. Paul makes this very clear in his writings. He talks, for example, in Galatians, in actually in chapter 3, he says, it was by faith you heard something. Faith comes by hearing, he says. It's not enough for the church to simply do lots of good things, or Christians to be nice people, or do nice stuff. At some point, we have to open our mouths and talk about the relationship that we have with God. And the life and the joy that comes through knowing Jesus. Wholeheartedly subscribe to that. But the mistake is, I think we can make, is that we can think it's all about preaching. And there is more to it than that. I think we've all met people, maybe in the office at work, who at worst try to ram God down your throat at every opportunity. At best, try to sort of creepily shoehorn God into every conversation. We've all met that kind of character I think you're in the office and someone says would you like a drink and someone says oh I don't need a drink I don't thirst I've got streams of living water (laughs) we've all met that character haven't we or the person comes across and they say is this is this chair taken or is this seat saved no but you can be If you believe in the blood of Jesus, brother, you can be saved today. Now I joke at that, and um, but that's not how we're meant to be. I saw this recently. This was someone sent me this picture. <laughs> now I think it's I think it's ironic. The Christian message is way more than just words. Way more than just a simple message that if we preach it, somehow there is this magical thing that happens. If, if that's not the case, then we might as well just leave this room right now, go and stand on every street corner and just start shouting. But I don't think that's what Paul did. I don't think that's what we're called to do. The secret to Paul's success across this region all those years ago was made more than just about words. And this is where it gets really interesting if you actually look at the content of what he said. Because when he goes from city to city in Galatia, he actually changes his message. And this is interesting and perhaps a little controversial. Let me explain. The first place he gets to, Acts chapter 13, he gets to Antioch in Pisidia. Now that's not Antioch in Syria, that's a different place. But here there are largely Jews and God-fearers. And what he does there, when he eventually gets to talking, and we'll get that in a moment, but he comes alongside and he stands shoulder to shoulder people. He identifies them as his brothers and he talks about his shared history as a Jew to a fellow Jew. And he talks about how they shouldn't miss out on the Messiah that they've all been longing for and how this person of Jesus has come. 
and how his light and his love and his blessing are spreading over the whole world. And you can read the sermon in Acts chapter 13 if you like. But when Paul gets to Lystra, however, a different place, a few hundred miles away, his approach is almost entirely different. This was an area populated by non-Jews. And it was probably a much poorer area, largely agricultural. And so what does he do? Well, interestingly, he doesn't seem to quote the Bible or indeed talk about Jesus very much at all. Now, for reasons we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure he did speak about Jesus. But what he does, actually, Lystra was this beautiful scenic region, rolling countryside, stunning scenery. And Paul stands in the middle of that and he says, you know, we have an amazing creator God. Who, who loves to give abundant harvests to his people. Hard-working people like you. Different city, different approach, different message. Paul continues this way as he travels across the boundaries of Galatia. I don't want to steal Julian's thunder in a few weeks' time when he, he talks about the church in Athens, but he goes to Athens and he says... There's a lot of gods going on in Athens, as you're probably aware. There's a lot of religious stuff going on in Athens. And he says, ah, I see you guys are religious too. Let me tell you about the the living God, the God who comes close. Let me tell you about my God. I see you guys. You know, God isn't very far away. You're nearly there. Does he slam them for their idolatry? Doesn't do that. Does he criticize or confront them in a harsh and judgmental way he doesn't do that different cities different and post to the jews and god fearers paul is happy to quote scripture to talk about john the baptist to the gentiles he spends much more time talking about the general revelation of of god and goes straight to the person of jesus to the non-jews he spends time on the doctrine of god he doesn't do that with the jews and i could go on suffice to say that The foundation of this church in Galatia was built on this tremendous understanding of people and cultural sensitivity. So here's the question, how did Paul get so socially and culturally aware and sensitive? And I think there's only really one reason or one way he could do that and that was to spend time with people. spend time to talk about their hopes and their fears and their anxieties and their dreams and their challenges. Reminds me of a story of our friend Andy Tilsley at a church in London. He was telling me about a story his friend was recounting. His friend works in schools in inner city London and he goes into schools and does assemblies. And uh, he went into this assembly one day, a bit like this room. Lots of kids and stuff sat around, and people sat around. And he said, okay, everybody, does anybody know how many religions have been started in the last 100 years? And a few people put their hands up, and first kid put his hand up, uh, five? No, 10, 20? No, 50, 70, 100, 500? No, he said, in the end, he stopped them and said, you know, actually, there's 1,000. A thousand religious, registered religions and philosophies. So, why don't we have a go at starting our own one today? 
He says that to the kids, and they're like, yeah, let's start our own religion today. Yay, that sounds like great fun. So he says, what do we want in it? If we're starting a religion, what would we like in it? And the first person says, I'd like love. And then his friend says, yeah, love, that's a great idea. We want love in our religion, don't we? That would be a really good idea. So he says, right, it's on the blackboard, love. Next, what's the next thing? Second hand, fun. I'd like fun in my religion. Yeah, let's have some fun in the religion. Yeah, that would be a really good idea. Let's put that up. That would be a good one. What next? What's next? Oh, justice. Yeah, justice. Justice would be great. Because we all need justice from the school bully, don't we? Let's put justice up there. Yeah, put justice. And so we went on. Justice. And actually, let's have friendship. Let's have laughter. Let's have joy. Let's have peace. And once all the suggestions had died down, and his friend says, well, guys... I've got really good news for you today. Turns out, we don't have to start a religion at all. In fact, because all of these things and much more are found in the person of Jesus Christ. I thought that was a brilliant illustration. A brilliant way of communicating just this extraordinary thing we have in the gospel. You know, that wasn't, I don't think, too far off of Paul's approach in Galatians. Rather than standing at the shores of a new city and going, gather around everybody, I've got something to tell you. Listen up. He goes to where the people are. He listens. He lives with them. It says he spent a long time with them. If you look at the scriptural timelines. And he doesn't start in Acts chapter 13, verse 15. He doesn't actually start until he's asked to talk. And then they have some good dialogue. And then they actually say, actually, that's really amazing. Can, I have, can we talk about this some more? You know, I think there's a whole lot of lessons we can learn from that approach. And we'll think about that at some time. When he gets to Iconium, next city in Galatia, it says in the scripture, you know, he spent a considerable amount of time there. It reminds me of Jesus' approach in Luke 10. When he says... Go onto the road. Do not, do not stop anybody on the road, but go find a home. Spend time with that person. Be with them. Rest with them. Live with them. Listen to them. You know, I've been in my church, in, yeah, I've been in church pretty much all my life, and I've heard hundreds of messages, on, thousands of messages on mission, on multiplication, on evangelism and growth. And the overarching theme of most of them has been, go, 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 go. Come on. Get on with it. Go. And it, it left me with this frantic feeling of running around and speaking to as many people as possible and hitting them ahead with the gospel as much as I possibly could with a message they didn't really want to hear. And secondly, then feeling guilty because I didn't want to do that. I think that's how most of us think about mission at times. I'm not sure I've heard a single message on mission that says, go, stay with people. Eat with people. Rest with people. Listen to people. A couple of brilliant quotes. Tim Keller the church leader, apologist, writer, and revivalist, really, what he's doing in New York. 
Let's not talk about friendship evangelism, he says. Let's just talk about friendship. Let's make sure our motive is good. Let's make sure we're hanging with people for the right reasons. And then the great thinker, great thinker and writer, really. Um, yeah, and, and church leader. Well, Welby, Justin Welby says, if I had one hour with someone exploring faith, I'd spend 55 minutes listening to them and asking questions. 55 out of the hour. I think that's some of the love and grace that we need and that Amersham needs. And we've got much to learn about Paul's approach in Galatia if we are to be the missional church that we're called to be. Now, what some of you might be thinking at this point is, well, Paul, I get what you're saying. Contextualization is really important and we need to be sensitive about what's going on in people's lives and hearts. But aren't you essentially just sugarcoating the Christian message? Aren't you saying, well, surely at the heart of it, there's an imperative to change. There is a message that we are sinners and I'm a bad person. And if I ever want God, if I want a relationship with God, then I need to repent. And kind of what I'm getting from you at the moment is, Let's just sweeten people up before we hit them over the head. That's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that was Paul's approach in any way, shape or form. And here's my best explanation as to why. You see, 2,000 years ago, there was this prevailing attitude or there was this idea. And I think it's still very prevalent today. It's the same things going on. It's this. If God is real... And I want a relationship with him. Basically, I have to do lots of good things and not do any bad things. And it's basically this kind of Santa Claus approach to Christianity. You've all heard the song. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. 93 days to Christmas, folks. (laughs) If we want relationship with God... You stay on the nice list. And then he might like you. Now that was the mentality that was prevalent right away across Galatia. Allow me another illustration. And for this I need a volunteer. Ian Lamb, perfect. (laughs) This is a tennis racket, Ian. I think you're familiar with this piece of equipment. If you want to come up here, mate, that would be great. And what I'd like you to do, in, if it's okay, for the rest of this sermon, I'd just like you to stand there and just keep the ball bouncing on the tennis racket, if that's okay. Brilliant. And by the way, you keep it up in the air. If you don't, the ball hits the floor, then God will not be happy. He will judge you. Brilliant. Thank you. You see, Ian is keeping the ball in the air. And I think a lot of us feel like, in our approach to faith, what we need to do is to keep the ball in the air. We stay on the nice list. If I'm crudely to divide the people in Galatia into two persons, there's the Jews and the non-Jews. And both of these people groups had this mentality. How are we doing? Good. (laughs) The Jews, God's chosen people who would bless the work through the whole of creation they would reveal God's goodness 
somehow to them even God was distant and far off and remote. And so they would need to go through a whole lot of ritual to actually make sure that God was on their side. This is a picture of the temple. You might be familiar, it might be a little bit hard to see. But effectively, God was distant. If you were in zone one, that's where God, the most holy, lived. Right in the middle there, the big building in the centre. And most Jews could only get as far as zones five or six. Women, zone nine. Gentiles, zone 11 or 12. And even to get to those places, you had to observe a lot of religious practice. A whole load of sacrifices, festivals, use money in the right way. Just keep the ball in the air. And non-Jews had exactly the same mentality, actually. Remember the place Lystra I spoke about earlier, the place of beautiful rolling hills, the agricultural environment? Well, there they had lots of other gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they were regularly sacrificed to them. In Acts chapter 14, if you read about it, that's their way of thinking. When Paul and Barnabas started to speak in them, they started to call them Zeus and Hermes. They had a lot of gods. And they were familiar with this because if they felt they kept the gods happy, then the harvests would be okay. And if the harvest failed, then some way they hadn't kept the gods happy. And so they're in this constant balance of, are we keeping the gods happy? What can we sacrifice? What can we do? What can we make sure that the gods keep happy? So that he will smile upon us. And they spent a huge amount of time in their religious practices keeping the ball in the air. See, (laughs) he's doing really well. See, Paul in Galatians 5, chapter 1 says, you know, this type of living, this type of living is a yoke of slavery. It's not about this, he says. See, this, this kind of mentality, it breaks people in two ways. Firstly, if you get quite good at keeping the ball in the air, Ian, you're doing really well. Would you like to show us a trick or two or something? That... <laughs> Very good. But of course, if you get good at keeping the ball in the air, what happens to our hearts? Pride starts to kick in. You're Jesus. <laughs> Jesus wasn't very happy with the Pharisees or the Sadducees. <laughs> of course, but then there's, of course, there's the second thing, of, and this is this is probably where most of us are at life's a little bit more complex than just keeping one ball in the air because it it's it's not just about lie, not lying it's about not hating people it's about keeping keeping the law It's about being generous to your possessions. It's about being kind to the poor. It's about honouring your father and mother. It's about observing the Sabbath. It's about a whole lot of stuff. There are a whole lot of rules and regulations. Just stay with one and keep it in the air. That would be great, mate. Thanks. But you know what? I meet so many people. So many people who live essentially like this. They look at their lives and actually they see the debris, the balls, 
on the floor. And why would God want to speak to me? See, I've been through seasons in my life where I walk into church and I think, yeah, you know what? I'm the man. I've been keeping my balls in the air. It's okay. It's all good. And then I've gone through seasons in my life where, you know, you feel like walking into church, late to church, sitting in the back, avoiding everybody. Why would God or anybody else want to possibly speak to me? My life is in ruins. It's just a mess. The message that that Paul preaches across Galatia, it may differ from place to place, but wherever he goes, he chooses to set people free from this mentality. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we've already read it. Know that a person is justified, not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ. Our relationship with God is not made good By keeping the balls in the air. He lived the life that you couldn't lead. He took the punishment you deserved. And of course this is really good news. And it's actually quite humbling. Because when you realise that actually you just can't keep on doing this indefinitely... That there are flaws in our lives and that we are not perfect and we can't keep all the things. This idea that the Bible calls grace means that we can just put the tennis racket down. You can do that now, buddy. (laughs) All of us can put the tennis racket down. You don't need to keep 50% of the balls in there. You don't need to keep 40% of the balls. You know, 40%, when I was at school, 40% was a pass. Which is good news, because you can be more wrong than you are right and still pass, which has always messed with me a little bit. But, you know, we can just rest in the amazing grace of God. And this is good news for people who have felt they've made a mess of their life and they've dropped balls everywhere. It's it's really good news for those of us that are struggling to hold everything together. And Paul keeps on saying it. Good news. Good news. Acts 13, 32. Good news. 14, 8. Good news. I have good news. Different cities, different messages, different approaches, but the overarching thing. God has come close in the person of Jesus, and there's nothing more you need to do to have a relationship with him. That's why the church was so magnetic. That's why people who heard this message just what God God is interested in me. And Paul took time to find out what's going on in your heart. What are the problems? What are the worries? What's the concern? What are the anxieties? What are the hopes? You know, they're all met, one and truly, in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more you need to do than acknowledge, I've dropped balls too. I've messed up too. Rich and poor and slave and free 
and Jew and Gentile and men and women, different nationalities and cultures, they all just flocked to the church with this message. Everybody is welcome. You're accepted too. Jesus Christ has brought about a change. So if that's what happened in Galatia, what is the actual application for us today? And I think it's twofold, and I'm going to try and keep this short, but the first thing is this. We are to, we are to endeavor to love people outstandingly. By all, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, says Jesus. By what? By how you love one another. We are to love outstandingly. We are to have the widest front door possible. Everybody anybody is welcome it's not just to be a job for the welcome team and a few others everybody is to welcome people to prize hospitality in our homes to care for those in need serve the disadvantaged show mercy and compassion to those that feel broken inside we are to be utterly outstanding Standing at loving people. The way Paul puts in Galatians 5 34 says the entire law, the whole keeping the ball up in the air stuff is summed up. Just love your neighbour. Just love your neighbour. That's the call on the church. That was the character of this church in Galatia, it seems. They were outstanding at love and everybody was to be accepted. And of course, to do that, we're to tear down everything that puts up barriers between people. We're to hate gossip, to flee from pride and superiority. And we're to prize things like forgiveness, value reconciliation. And love should mark us out more than anything else as we walk this road. And whether people come to Jesus whether they don't. We want the communities that are surrounding us or involved with us in any way to know that we love them. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we are to know that we are loved ourselves. And that's the amazing thing is that we're all included and this is the question that we need to answer. Do we know that we are loved by God? Do you know? Do you really know? There's a guy, do anyone watch TED Talks? Does anyone do TED Talks? Yeah, a few people have do TED Talks. They're great. They're 10-minute talks about, well, all sorts of things, really. A guy called Jian Jiang I came across recently. 
he'd heard Bill Gates on the telly came and uh, he decided he wanted to be Bill Gates. And so he tried really, really hard to be like Bill Gates. And he just got rejected and he fell over and he lost money left, right and centre. His businesses failed. He just... He just was in a mess. And he decided to think about this idea of rejection. And so he, he went under this thing called rejection therapy, researched it, and he decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn to be really familiar with rejection. So he went into McDonald's and said, can I have, um, can I have a free meal, please? And they said, no, you can't. Oh, okay then. Rejection. Can I have, Tom, can I have... Two grand, please. No, no, okay. I'm... And he went through this process over a few years of just learning how to cope with rejection. Day after day, week after week. And during that process, he learned this idea of just what it felt like and how to cope with this feeling of the it isn't all going to come to him and it wasn't going to be good enough. And the challenges of being rejected. And there was one point where he'd written his last email. He, he writes in his testament, he and actually he's become a Christian. Because through that process, he needed to find that actually his, his value wasn't in the things he was trying to achieve. It was in a God who loved him. And actually he found that at the end of this process of all this rejection therapy, that the only thing that really made a massive difference was the idea that actually his value wasn't placed in the things he could achieve and the things he could get and the things that he could attribute to himself. It was in the God who loved him and his identity was in God that loved him. And if you get a chance to watch his story and read his his story it's just it's really brilliant but the gods of galatia they may be slightly different in terms of the things that people needed in lystra the things about housing and all those kind of things but i don't think they're that different to what was today and um in 2000 years i guess in some respects the names have changed but jiang Jiang found that actually the gods that he was pursuing, that of success and that of acceptance, that the other side of admitting that actually I'm just, I'm a bit of a failure really and actually I'm, I'm not those things. And that he had to engage in this idea of repentance and confession that he couldn't keep the ball indefinitely in the air. At the other side of that, he found this wonderful freedom and this life that was just extraordinary. Found in that he wasn't good enough. Found in that he couldn't keep it all there. And that was Paul's experience too. Actually, you read in this passage, Paul's experience is that in chapters 13 and 14, he gets rejected continually. Actually, he gets more than rejected. He gets abused and beaten and a few other things as well along the way. But this is verse. I think this is probably my famous verse and favorite verse in the Bible, Galatians 2.20. He says, I live my life by faith in the God, faith in the Son of God, who loves me, 
and gave himself for me. Paul knew that he was able to deal with life and all the challenges that he had and everything else by knowing that God loved him. You know, I've been pastoring people for over 10 years full time and I counsel people and I spend time with people and occasionally through some wisdom that I might have imparted, there's been some change and perhaps some insecurities or some patterns of behavior have been changed, but I've observed, you know, it's far less than anything I've said. It's far more freedom has come through people genuinely knowing, understanding God loves me. God loves you. And when people can embrace that and actually admit, I haven't got it all together, my life is weak. But I know I'm not defined by that. I'm defined by the fact that Jesus loves me. In Galatians, if you read it, there's a there's a section whereby Paul gets well, he got he gets quite cross with a few of the people because they'd forget that, and they started getting backtracked into the law and picking up the tennis racket again and it so easily happens for all of us I think often it happens because of fear I have pockets of insecurity in our life and we think oh golly I'm not sure I don't people won't think I'm as good a leader or I need to work harder to get the approval I need I won't come across as popular I need to I need to work harder to be more popular you know, when I started public speaking, I was crippled by fear. I hated it. I avoided it as much as possible. I had to dig deep into the reason why that was. And of course, it's, it's fairly obvious. It's because you might fail. I might fail. People might criticize me. And I might be aware of how much better others are than I am. And then you, you respond to that. Then you say, well, actually, I've got to work harder. I, or you just avoid it altogether. I had to learn. I'm not defined in any way, shape or form. By good talks or bad talks. Good worship, bad worship. Good prayers, bad prayers. Those things aren't the things that define. What defines us is this. I live my life. I have faith in the Son of God who loves me. Jesus loves you. Jesus really loves you. He sees how little you prayed last week. He sees how dark your thought life is. He sees where you're greedy for money. He sees your ambition ahead of other people. And do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he loves you? See, Paul's success across Galatia was an amazingly sensitive guy, loving guy. He sent people out and people said, wow, these Christians are amazing, caring and loving people. They stay with us and they observe us and they talk with us. But before any of that stuff, Paul 
the murderer. Paul says, I live my life by faith in the God who loves me. You know, I'm excited to see what God will do amongst us as a church in the next months, days, weeks, years maybe. Projects starting, groups and ministries. And before we get to any of that, we have to do it on this foundation. Even if things don't work out, as we hope, I'm still not defined by that. I'm I'm defined by the fact that God loves me. Some groups will start and others will flourish and some will fade. We are not defined by success. We're defined by the fact that Jesus loves us. With Han. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you know? How much Jesus loves you. We're going to sing for a few moments together and worship together. But this morning, as I was praying, I'd really like to pray for a few people. And I feel like Holy Spirit would, would concur. We're going to pray. And if you have a doubt about yourself this morning, in any way, shape or form, If you're doubting your worth, your value, your significance, then we would love to pray with you this morning. That you would know the love of God. In order to be outstanding at loving, we're going to need people who know their love. But also we're going to need spiritual mothers and fathers, those that are able to open up their homes, to invite in, to make room. For people, and I just get a sense the Lord wants to speak again to a few people to say, you know, I want you to be spiritual mothers and fathers in this place, to open up your homes, to be places where all are welcome, that practice hospitality outstandingly and love outstandingly. And if you get a sense this morning that is you, then we'd love to pray for you as well. And then the other people this morning, I think there are some here this morning who have been. Just trying really hard to keep the balls in the air. You know? I just get a sense God saying, you know, might be a day when you can put those down. Put them down. And if that's you, then this morning we'd love a chance to pray with you. And the the prayer ministry team have been prepping themselves on that basis. And they're ready to minister. But for a few moments now, we're just going to focus on the truth of this. God really loves you. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came in order that you might know his love. Do you know God loves you? Do you know you're loved? Thank you for listening. For 
further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.